Ever wanted to know what the inside of a black hole feels like? Good, listen on. I'm Roger and this is Bookshook and in this episode I discuss the second half of May's book, Light. So each month I take a book I've never read, split it in two and discuss each half on the second and last Fridays of the month. I'll do a first impression summary alongside my thoughts and reactions and then raise any interesting ideas so far in the novel. Be aware there may be spoilers. I'd love to share your thoughts and ideas at future episodes, so please leave a comment or start a conversation below. Or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. Welcome to Bookshook. So this episode is all about the second half of Light by M. John Harrison. I'm reading for, from chapter 18 for, on page 161. Now, just be aware I've removed any swear words. It is an adult novel. There are themes of a sexual nature and violence. Just a quick recap. So Kearney is seeing this Shranda everywhere, this mysterious skull-faced creature. Assyria Mao is trying to find where her rogue cultivar came from with Billy Anker. And the EMC, the big corporation, are chasing him for something he knows. Ed Charney's killed Evie Cray because he owed the Cray sisters some money. But Bella Cray is still alive and she, no doubt, would like to get some revenge. We had some questions from the first half. What did the Cray sisters want from Ed Charney's? What will the ramifications of Ed killing Evie Cray be? Will Bella get her revenge? Why does he owe them so much money? And ultimately, will Kearney defeat the Shranda or will it consume him? We also got the question, what is the South Polar artifact that Billy has learnt so much from? And what has he found out that the EMC are desperate for? I'm really hoping for some answers to those questions. Just a quick recap then from chapter 18. So Ed Chinese, he meets this woman called Annie Glyph. She's a ritual driver who was on the verge of dying, but then she magically seems to come alive again using a similar technology that was discovered by Brian Tate. They make love and we are introduced to Sandra Shen who keeps a circus consisting of tableau of historical scenes including quote Brown Tate and Michael Kearney looking into a computer monitor 1999. She reflects that the circus is a dying trade and that she should move on. Now Ed asks the circus receptionist for a job. She tells him to speak to Sandra Shen or Madame Sandra. Whilst he's waiting to see her, he plays dice with some old men. The dice are very reminiscent of Kearney's Shranda dice. When Sandra Shen finally does appear, she threatens him that he will work for her, otherwise she'll give him up to Bella Cray. She wants him to perform as an oracle, someone who can see into the future. I believe it works by him looking into a vat of Kefahuhi light, the light that Kearney and Tate discovered. Now we go back to the story of Kearney. Kearney goes to see Valentine Sprake only to find him dead at his flat. Alice Sprake, his sister, is there too and she threatens to send the Shranda on him if he doesn't leave. He goes to Anna, his wife, and says he's leaving her and we hear their history. They met as students in Cambridge, quote, two years after he stole the dice, looking for someone to murder. But he never wanted to murder her. Now they end up getting married, not having children, and he does finally tell her about all the murders. Then we move back to Syria. Billy Anker is looking at the strange cultivar that says, quote, Dr. Hands, please, but he doesn't recognise it. He tells Syria she can't outrun the EMC in her stolen K-ship, the White Cat. He explains how 200 years ago, humans discovered K-Tech and how it was mined and now it's running out. But Billy Anker has found, quote, a whole planet of it. He mentions that, quote, amazing guys like Ed Chinese were exploring the Sigma End wormhole and what was at the end of it. Billy risked his life to find out by traveling along it to get to this planet. Syria learns that Uncle Zip, a clone maker, created Billy Anker. He describes what he saw at the end of the wormhole. Quote, you fall out the wormhole, toppling end over end, all your control systems redlined, and there it is, light, deep light, Fountains, cascades, falling curtains of light. All the colours you can imagine and some you can't. Shapes they used to see through optical telescopes in the old days back on Earth, you know? Like gas clouds and clouds of stars, but evolving there in human time in front of you, building and falling like surf. 
He finds the Dr. Hands package there and takes it back through. Billy Anker is keen not for anyone to find this planet. And when Sirius says she wants to go, he says, quote, that's no place for a human being. She responds with, quote, I'm not a human being. And he says, oh yes, you are. Then we move back to Sandra Shen. She's training Ed Cheney's as a visionary. He's finally allowed to do a show and predicts war. Then we go back to Kearney, who goes to Brian's house, where he's conducting a strange experiment involving quantum mechanics. His wife has left him and he is concerned that, quote, physics has come looking for him in some unfathomable way, just as the Shrander is following Kearney, perhaps. Now, Tate is worried that his discovery will leak out, so he's rigged up his home laboratory like a Faraday cage, quote, by tacking copper chicken wire to the walls and ceiling. As an extra precaution, he had covered the windows with Baker foil. Nothing electromagnetic could get into him from outside that room. Nothing could get out. No one could know what he was doing. He gives Kearney a pocket drive with, quote, the results of the last run. He continues explaining, it was decoherence free for a whole minute. We had G bits, we had Q bits that survived the whole minute before interference set in. That's like a million years down there. That's like the indeterminacy principle is suspended. He gave a strained laugh. Is a million years long enough for us, do you think? Will that do? But then, I don't know what happened then. The fractals started to leak. Then the cat went inside after them. She just walked through the screen into the data. Try and wrap your head around that. My understanding is that the drive contains data which is, quote, substance, and that the Schrander is after that information, perhaps for some reason. Brian Tate tells Kearney that, quote, none of us are here at all, and then he appears to melt. Brian says to Anna, quote, I think it was some sort of illusion. What are we going to do, says Anna. Kearney had been waiting for her to ask this. He found the pocket drive he had taken from Tate, weighed it in his hand for a moment, then put it on the table between them, where it lay gleaming softly in the coloured light, a nicely designed object not much bigger than a pack of cigarettes. Titanium has a look to it, he thought. Today's popular metal, he said. Take this. If I don't come back, get it to Sony. Tell them it's from Tate and they'll know what to do with it. But that stuff, she said, that stuff is in there. Kearney responds with, I don't think it has anything to do with the data. I think Tate is wrong about that. I think it's me this thing wants. And I think it's the same thing that's wanted me all along. It's just found a new way of talking to me. She shook her head and pushed the drive back towards him. So Brian escapes to America on his own after rolling the Schrander dice, but it appears the Schrander may have caught up with him, taking on the guise of Anna, perhaps. He feels her hand on him at 5 a.m. Then we go to Syria Mao. Syria is falling in love with Billy Anker, and when she sees him making love to the clone Mona, she becomes very jealous and deposits them on a barren moon. More on that later. Now remember, she's a ship, and her thoughts on how she would physically express her love for Billy are very interesting. Syria dreams of being 10 years old. It's slightly unclear as to whether sexual abuse from the father occurred, although it is confirmed later on in the novel. She dreams that she hears her own voice say, quote, when will you come for me, Dr. Hans? I'm thinking, has the mathematics of the ship suppressed some memory from her past, perhaps? We hear how at 13 she was recruited by EMC to fly K-pods. And after the dream, she feels pangs of remorse abandoning Billy and Mona to die. She goes back to find Mona dead and Billy on the verge of death. He tells her that Uncle Zip is attacking Syria Mal's ship and then he dies. So Uncle Zip has been chasing her all this time. Then we move to Ed Chinese. Sandra Shen has all this old 450 year old tech like valve amplifiers that she's using on Ed to help him see into the future. She asks him strange questions like, quote, tell me about your relationship with the famous lady pilot. Swear words removed. So perhaps Ed had a relationship with Syria in the past. Bella Cray has found him and is tracking him with two, quote, corporate looking guys. She watches him do a show yelling out, break a leg. And then he dreams of his mother dying and his sister, quote, leaving for other worlds. These dreams really do seem to resemble Syria's dreams more and more. It's becoming quite clear that they are brother and sister. 
As Ed is walking around after the show, he sees Bella Cray with the dead bodies of Tig Vesigal and Nina from part one. Now, Tig used to run a drug tank farm that Ed would go to, and Nina was Tig's wife, whom Ed had a relationship with. Bella tells Ed he'll end up dead too. Ed says rather desperately, quote, I could pay you something now. And then Annie Glyph strolls into the scene and being twice Bella's height and so strong, lifts her up by the neck, steals her money and leaves her walking into the distance. I'm thinking, you show her Annie. Ed says, quote, she won't rest until you're dead too. And then we go back to America with Brian Kearney. It seems it is not Anna in the form of the Shrander, it's actually real Anna. She's followed Kearney to America and they are on a road trip north of New York. He tells her, quote, we're hiding, no doubt from the Shrander. She asks him whether he will kill her and he responds, quote, I don't think so. And then we go back to Syria and Uncle Zip admits he followed his son Billy Anker to find out how to get to the K-Tech planet. There's a big battle. Syria escapes, but Uncle Zip is on her trail. We learn the complex process of becoming a K-ship pilot, and it is quite horrendous. I'll talk more about it later. She dreams of the man in the top hat again who says, quote, you must forgive yourself for everything. This is wise advice to anyone, but especially Syria Mao, who perhaps feels guilt at leaving her brother behind when her mother died at the age of 13. He beckons her to follow him through the Kefahushi tract, and then the vision disappears. And then we move to Ed. He's dreaming of the future for one of Sandra Shen's shows. He finally puts on a good show by predicting the treasures at the end of the Kefahushi tract. The punters love it because he predicts a future, quote, glittering in front of them like an affordable asset, and it stops the talk of war. Now, Annie Glyph uses the money she stole to get retailed as a very small and young cultivar that Ed barely recognises. When he criticises her, she tells him he's just a recovering drug addict and leaves him. Hopefully, Bella won't recognise Annie and get her retribution. I have to say, it seems out of character for Annie to leave Ed over this spat. Quote, I love you, Ed, but it has to be said you're a twink. A drug addict, that is. What if I wanted to be made love to by someone bigger than me? What if that was what I needed to get off? You don't see that. That's why you're a twink. And to the ritual driver, get me away from him. She does realise that he is going to be travelling off with Madame Shen and this circus. As Ed leaves, he notices Kay ships preparing for war. Then we cut to Anna and Kearney. As they make love, she seems to turn into sparks and murmur, quote, sparks in everything. Perhaps the Shrander did take on the guise of Anna. She takes the outboard drive from Kearney's laptop and remembers him saying, quote, information might be a substance. Now, this is the drive taken from Brian Tate's lab that emitted those strange sparks. Now, Syria asked the shadow operators to make a cultivar for her of their own choosing. They choose the body of 12-year-old Syria Mao, and she inhabits the body and thinks, quote, what had she been so frightened of? Bodies were not new to her, and besides, this one has never been herself. The Nastic commander of Touching the Void, who has been chasing Syria, remember the Nastica, these many tentacled aliens, had been damaged in the collision with Uncle Zip's ship. Quote, he had no clear idea, for instance, why he had been cooperating with Uncle Zip in the first place, though he guessed perhaps that Uncle Zip had promised to share Billy Anker's discovery with him, an entire planet of unlined K-Tech. There's going to possibly be a war between the alien Nastic race and the human race, so the K-Tech could be very useful to the Nastic. Now we learn a little bit more about the Dr. Hans package. Quote, Uncle Zip woke up something which already lived inside it. What that was, neither he nor the Nastic tailors had any idea. It was something much more intelligent than any of its predecessors. It was self-aware in a way that might take years to comprehend. If it had once been what Uncle Zip claimed it to be, a package of measures powerful enough to undo safely the bridge between the operator and the code, a kind of reverse signing up, it was no longer anything like that. It was alive and it was looking for other K code to talk to. Uncle Zip follows Syria Mao down this wormhole, presumably to get to this planet of K-Tech. And how was this wormhole created? Well, according to Uncle Zip's reasoning, quote, 20 million years before mankind arrived, someone had tapped off a millionth of 1% of the output of the RX-1 system and punched a wormhole straight out there to some destination no one knew. They'd left behind no archaeology whatsoever, no clue of how you would do it, 
just the hole itself. Now, the RX1 system is an accretion disk, a rotating disk of matter around a large body like a black hole. Ed is in Sandra Shen's traveling circus ship, the Perfect Low. They stop off at agricultural planets and soon all the performers leave the traveling circus. It's just Ed left. He stares at the exhibits that still fill one hold. He stands, quote, in front of Michael Kearney and Brian Tate looking into a monitor 1999. There was something feral and frightened in their expressions as if they had used up all their effort to get the genie out of the bottle and were beginning to wonder if they would ever persuade it to go back in again. Now, big spoiler alert. Maybe skip forward a minute or read the novel. Ed notices a pool of those strange light fractals form into different people he knew. Tig Vesicle, Nina, his wife, the Cray sisters, and finally Madame Shen. Ed screams, quote, You were all of them. None of that was real. You were everyone in that part of my life. She manipulated him into the future telling Fish Tank. Ed continues, What was that stuff I had to put my head in? Because, you know, it's disgusting to do that day after day. Ah, said Chandra Shen, that was me. I was always in there with you, Ed. You weren't alone. I was the medium, you know, like the proteome in the twink tank. You swam to the future through me. She smoked her cigarette meditatively. That's not quite true, she admitted. I misled you there. I was training you, but not so much to see the future as be it. How do you like that idea, Ed? Be the future. Change it all. Change everything. She shook her head as if this was a bad day for explaining herself. Put it another way, she tried. When you applied for this job, you said you flew every kind of ship but one. What's the only kind of ship you never flew? Who are you? Ed whispered. And where are you taking me? You'll know soon. Quite clearly, she's taking him to the K-Tech planet at the end of the RX-1 wormhole. She comments on the crazy physics by paraphrasing Shakespeare's Hamlet. Quote, there are more kinds of physics in play here than your people dream of in your philosophy. We learn, thankfully, that Annie Glyph was real, though. Phew. Poor Ed dreams of his sister coming out of their father's study and rearranging her clothing. Interestingly, he jumps out on her, yelling, Yoy, 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 which is the expression Sirius Magician uses. An egg bounces off her dinner tray along the hallway, which very much reminds me of the lettuce bouncing along the railway carriage after Kearney murders Sophie in the first half of the novel. Quote, Something. He thought it was a shrink-wrapped lettuce rolled sour along the empty carriage. Perhaps it relates to a metaphorical murder of Syria's innocence. The ship tells him, quote, Time to forgive yourself these things. So another mind-blowing chapter over. I'm hoping Syria and Ed, brother and sister, estranged for many years, are going to meet up soon. Let's see. Now, back to Brian Kearney, and he recalls the memory again. This is London giving him information again, as mentioned in the previous podcast. He's 20 years old, at the Charing Cross Road, and a lady screams at him, quote, You're paper, you're a written thing. She's affirming that statement by Brian Tate that, quote, Information, written paper, might be a substance, Kearney. She gives him a piece of paper, quote, On it, he found not a letter, but an address in Cambridge, written in blue ink, as old as himself. He brought it close to his face. Reading it seemed to exhaust him. The folds gave way and it fell into lace in his hands. He remembers the address without wanting to. When he arrives at the location, he sees the horse head Shranda. She is introduced as a female and tells him, quote, You can have all of this. The trick, of course, is to find your way around. I wonder if you know how close you are to that. Is this the Kearney Tate breakthrough by any chance? Kearney is so freaked out by the scary Shranda that he doesn't really listen to her. He picks up the Shranda dice by accident as he tries to steady himself in a state of panic. Quote, he stumbled into the little inlaid table and grasping hold of it to keep his balance, found he had picked up the Shranda's dice. At that, his own panic filled the room, a liquid so thick he was forced to turn and swim his way through the door. His arms worked in a sort of breaststroke while his legs ran beneath him in useless slow motion. He stumbled across the landing outside and straight down the stairs, full of terror and ecstasy, the dice in his hand. There's that information is substance again. His feeling of panic is literally turned into a liquid, just as the Kearney-Tate data turns into that substance of light moat fractals. Now, back on Monster Beach in the USA, and the Shranda chases him down. Initially, 
Kearney places his head in the sand like an ostrich and then he confronts the Shrander, metaphorically confronting his fear. And we find out that in actual fact, this scary skull-headed Shrander is actually a bit of a sweetie pie. It reminds me of being young and terrified of the Punch figure in Punch and Judy personally, but then I grew up and he's nothing to be scared of really. That fear of fear. Quote, why me, shouts Kearney. The Shrander replies with, there was something I liked about you from the very beginning. The Shrander asks him why he murdered so many women and Brian explains that it was to keep the Shrander away. It responds with, quote, didn't you realise it wasn't working? So Brian acted as if the murders were some propitiation to a god or a sacrifice. The Shrander picks up Kearney and he feels himself falling into a strange attractor where, quote, he was nothing, he was everything. Kearney opened his eyes. Too bright, he said. Everything was too bright to see. The light roared in on him unconfined. He felt it on his skin. He heard it as a sound. It was light unburdened, light like a substance, real light. Great walls and arcs and petals of it hung and flickered. They hardened, they endured a moment. They tumbled and fell towards him. They somehow passed through him and were gone in a second, only to be replaced. He had no idea where he was. He felt the most extraordinary sense of surprise and wonder and delight. His fear disappears and it is quite a remarkable scene that you just have to read it to do it justice. The Shrander tells Kearney that the dice were, quote, only dice. I wondered why you took them. People play some kind of game with them. Why don't you put them down? And when he does, he sees moments from his past in them. And then, quote, he saw the raging glory of the light. He felt himself slipping away into it, here in this fabulous place. He was so amazed. He wanted the Shrander to know. He wanted it to be certain he had understood. I've been here and seen this, he said. I've seen it. He felt the vacuum empty him out. Oh, Anna, I've seen it. And that's it. End of Kearney, passed up to some other universe. Now, back on the White Cat, and Syria Mao offers up the Dr. Hands package to the ship's computer. The computer code in the Dr. Hands package mingles with the White Cat's operational code, the mathematics. It's all very trippy. Quote, suddenly everything was out of the box. Every idea anyone had ever had about the universe was available, operating and present. The wires were crossed. The descriptive systems had collapsed into some regime prior to them all. The information supersubstance had broken loose. It was a moment of reinvention. It was the moment of maximum vertigo. Mathematics itself was loose like a magician in a funny hat and nothing could be the same again. Now, a magician duly does appear and asks Syria to dance. Quote, Syria Mao flinched away. She thought of the mother leaving her to face things without a word of help. She thought of the father and the sex things he had wanted her to do. She thought of her brother refusing to wave to her even though he knew he would never see her again. The narration continues, quote, The ship's mathematics, which had been Dr. Hans all along, or half of him at least, sent her to sleep. It had a quick look at some of the other parts of its project. This involved some travel in ten spatial and especially four temporal dimensions. Then, having reorganised the white cat a little more to its satisfaction, it took the shortest possible route to Sigma End and threw itself down the wormhole. The book at this point becomes very trippy. You have to throw out the window all notions of time and space. Time at this point seems to disintegrate really, I guess, or coalesce. The implication that all things are happening at all times. And even when Syria looks out the window, she sees Uncle Zip's ship falling through the wormhole over and over. And Syria's ship says, quote, all these things are happening at once. This is a real time feed. Whatever happened to him in there is still happening. It will always be happening. Get your head around that, Einstein. Now, Dr. Hens, or the Schrander, we'll learn more about exactly what he is in a bit, pulls the real Syria out of the tank and forces her to confront herself. Quote, in the micro cameras, she saw herself for the first time in 15 years. She was this small, broken, yellowish thing, its limbs all at odd angles, curling and uncurling itself feebly against the pain of the open air. What she heard as a scream of horror and despair was only a faint rough groan. 
The skin stretched over her like the tanned or preserved skin of a bog burial. There was no flesh between that and the bones beneath. The withered lips drew back over small, even teeth. The eyes glared out of tarry sockets. Time seems to have vanished since Michael Kearney's remains are now where Dr. Hans is. He turns Syria Mao into a bird and she flies away. I'll chat a bit more about that in a moment. It is clear that Dr. Hans was the Schrander, the horse skull creature Michael had been seeing. Now, let's move to Ed. Ed goes down the wormhole and we learn that Sandra Shen is also the Schrander. There's that anagram again. I should have got that. He is described as looking like the death of Chatterton. Now, quick diversion here. What is the death of Chatterton? A quick Wikipedia on the death of Chatterton. It's an oil painting on canvas by the English pre-Raphaelite painter Henry Wallace, completed in 1856. I'll put a photo up of it. The subject was the 17-year-old English early romantic poet Thomas Chatterton, shown dead after he had poisoned himself with arsenic in 1770. He was considered a romantic hero for many young and struggling artists in Wallace's time. If you're watching this, you can see that clearly Ed does not look well. He has a pallid, almost, you could say, dead complexion. The narrator clearly indicates that the Schrander is right next to him. Quote, at his shoulder, odd and uncertain looking in that raging, intransigent light, yet somehow less threatening than it first appeared, stood the entity sometimes known as Sandra Shen, sometimes Dr. Hans, but most often down the years, and to most of its brief associates, the Schrander. The Schrander reveals some things to him. Ed says, quote, You're from the K culture, aren't you? You didn't die, you guys. What are you? And the Schrander responds with, quote, Whatever kind, I'm the last of them, that's for sure. She sighed. All good things must come to an end, Ed. So that alien race didn't die out. We learned that the Schrander's race learned from a previous race. Quote, we got all the answers you people want. Then we came up against this. She's referring to the tract at the end of the RX-1 wormhole, I'm guessing with all that K-Tech. The Schrander continues, quote, to tell you the absolute truth, Ed, it stopped us as dead as the rest. It was old when we got here. The people who had been here before us, well, they were old when we were nothing. We stole their ideas as fast as we could, the way you're doing now. We had our try at that thing and it failed. We also learned that the K-culture Shrander is a multi-dimensional being. Quote, I lived in these ruins, these objects and others, all across the halo. There was a part of me in all of them, and every part of me was all of me. After EMC discovered K-Tech, I lived in the navigational space of this ship. I stole it. From inside its maths and across the bridge into its wetware, I had the run of 14 dimensions, including four temporal. I was halo-wide. I was backwards and forwards in time like a yo-yo. I could intervene. Ed says, why? Quote, because we built you, Ed. We built you from the amino acids up. We made a guess at what we didn't have and we built your ancestors to evolve into what we couldn't be. Head well and truly blown there. This alien race have come to an impasse and designed humans that can evolve in order to find the secret. Quote, it beat our intelligence, our capacity to understand. In the end, we just didn't have the juice. We couldn't know the tract, but we decided to build something that could. We learned that the Schrander was appearing to Michael Kearney, who, quote, was too frightened of the things he knew. Although the Schrander explains that he and Brian invented all the science to explore these far regions of space, quote, I shouldn't have brought him here, but I felt I owed him. She explains he stole the dice and that she'd been following him just to ask for the Schrander dice back. The Schrander explains that she wants Ed to go deep into the Kefa who she tracked. And Ed says, quote, why me and not someone with brains like Kearney? And the Schrander says, quote, I don't want you to understand it. I want you to surf it. I think that's just a great idea. Understanding out the window, just experience. Ed Chinese takes over control of the white cat ship as war breaks out above him. And he does indeed go in deep. The book ends with a vision of Syria flying high above the asteroid. The Schrander dice next to the dead body of Kearney. So, 
There we go, the novel ends. Initial thoughts, a mind-blowing science fiction fantasy novel. Wow, I feel like my head has been blown wide open by this book. It deals with some really complicated scientific ideas. It's a truly fantastic read and very scary and humorous in places. I would recommend it to sci-fi fantasy buffs, anyone with a love of physics and quantum theory. This is the great British version of Gravity's Rainbow. Quote, then fusion product burst out of her stern. She let forward on a line of bright white light and shortly made a hole in nowhere. Well, the engine's on. Let's just point the effer. Let's just do that, Ed. Which of these switches is the music? Truly awe-inspiring read with so many lush and interesting details. Now we have those questions. Will Kearney defeat the Shranda or will it consume him? Well, he made peace with it. The Shranda was actually a bit of a sweetie pie. It just wanted the Shranda dice back and it wanted to show him this amazing K-Tech planet. What was the South Polar artifact that Billy had learnt so much from? Well, we realised that it was K-Tech. And what had he found out that the EMC are desperate for? K-Tech, again. What do the Kray sisters want from Ed Chinese? Money. And... Will Bella get her revenge? No, she got her own comeuppance, didn't she? We never saw her again after Annie Glyphs picking her up. There's some great ideas to come out of the book. The science writing in it was quite incredible. Get your head round this. Quote, this is just after Syria has discovered Uncle Zip chasing her down. Quote, what had happened was this. In their haste to beat one another to the White Cat, Uncle Zip and the commander of the Nastic Heavy Cruiser touching the void had collided in the Motel Splendido parking lot. At the time of the collision, Uncle Zip's vehicle of choice, the K-ship El Rayo X on loan, along with the Krishna Moir pod from Undisclosed Context in the bureaucracy of EMC, had already torched up to around 25% the speed of light. 30 or 40 seconds later, it was buried deep below the Nastic vessel's greenish Rhine-like hull, having penetrated the hauled internal structures as far as the command and control centre before losing momentum. Touching the void absorbed this incoming energy in a simple Newtonian fashion, retransmitting it as heat, noise, and finally a sluggish acceleration in the direction of the lesser Magellanic cloud. Its ruptured hull was promptly surrounded by clouds of shadow operators trying to make damage estimates. A call of tiny repair machines, low-end swarming programs mediating via a substrate of smart ceramic glue began to seal the hole. Wow. Science. Do you like science? This is loads of it, just like that. And then when the battle commenced, quote, the engagement had to take place within one and a half minutes or Syria Mao would burn out. During that time, she would flicker unpredictably in and out of normal space 50 or 60,000 times. She would remember little of it afterwards. An image here, an image there. In ship space, a high-end gamma burst generating 50,000 K for an endless 14 nanoseconds looked like a flower. Targets turned under the gaze of her acquisition systems, like diagrams, to be flipped this or that number of degrees in seven dimensions until they bloomed like flowers too. To the targets themselves, the white cat seemed to come out of nowhere on three or four different arcs, which, though sequential, appeared simultaneous, in the midst of decoys, false signals and invented battle languages. A froth of code and violence, which could have only the one conclusion. The fact is, boys, she commiserated, I'm not sure which of these is me. The Norma Shrike, struggling to connect, broke up into a cloud of pixels, like jigsaw pieces blown off a table in a high wind. The Krish Ramion and the Shaman Care, trying not to run down into one another in their haste to get away, ran into a small asteroid instead. Suddenly, it was all unmatched bits and pieces floating in nowhere. They had ragged edges. None of them looked human at any scale she chose. Local space was cooling down, but it was still like a cooker and resonating with light and heat, glittering with exotic particles and phase states. It was beautiful. Whoa, have you ever read anything so technical? We got that interesting idea of the love between a ship and a man. When Syria is in love with Billy, Anchor, she reflects on the body and on the mind. Quote, she was a rocket ship and he was a man. She thought about that. She watched over him while he slept and had her own dreams. In her dreams, quote, Billy Anchor knelt over her, smiling down endlessly while she smiled up at him. She was in love, but didn't quite know what to want. 
puzzled by herself. She simply exhibited herself to him in a daze. She wanted to feel the weight of his gaze, she realised, in a room full of light on a summer afternoon. But a kind of shadow version of this event dogged her imagination and sometimes made things seem absurd. It was cold in the house. There was food cooling on a tray. The boards were bare. She was so much smaller than him. All she felt was embarrassment and a kind of uninspired chafing. In an attempt to discover how she should act, she ran footage of Mona the clone's companions in the days before she blew them out the airlock. From this, she learned to say, with a kind of angry urgency, I want to do it. I want to have sex. But in the end, Syria Mao had no interest in the act. Indeed, she was rather upset by the absurdity of it. Now, I've made that quote kid-friendly, but I urge you to seek out the original. It's such an interesting reflection on love and the physical act of love. It reminds me of how almost bizarre in a way that we have this duality as a human, the physical and the mental. What would it be just to have a brain like Syria or be part of a superstructure like a ship? Such a weird and thought-provoking concept. And to be this and to be in love. It's interesting how she coasts the idea and processes the thought of a physical union with a human. She seems to have rejected the idea of physical love. It's now beneath her. What do you think? We hear about that horrendous method. She becomes a K pilot and it happens very young. Quote, you sign up for the K ships in sterile white rooms at even temperatures. Nevertheless, whatever you do, you can't get warm. You mustn't have eaten. They give you the emetics anyway. They give you the injection. They give you the test. But to be honest, that is only to pass the two or three days it takes the injection to work. By then, your bloodstream is teeming with selected pathogens, artificial parasites and tailored enzymes. You present with the symptoms of MS, lupus and schizophrenia. They strap you down and give you a rubber gang to bite on. The way is cleared for the shadow operators, running on a nanomech substrate at the sub-micrometer level, which soon begin to take your sympathetic nervous system to pieces. They flush the rubbish out, continue through the colon. They pump you with a white paste of 10 micrometer range factories, which will farm exotic proteins and monitor your internal indicators. They core you at four points down the spine. You're conscious all the way through this process, except for the brief moment when they introduce you to the K-code itself. Many recruits, even now, don't make it past that point. If you do, they seal you in the tank. By then, they have broken most of your bones and taken some of your organs out. You're blind and deaf, and all you are aware of is a kind of nauseous surf rolling through you forever. They've cut into your neocortex so that it will accept the software bridge known ironically as the Einstein cross from the shape you see the first time you use it. You're no longer alone. You'll soon be able to consciously process billions of billions of bits per second. But you will never walk again. You'll never laugh or touch someone or be touched, have sex. You'll never do anything for yourself. You will never even defecate for yourself again. You have signed up. It comes to you for an instant that you were able to choose this, but that you will never, ever, ever be able to unchoose it. Absolutely horrendous. No wonder Syria rejected Billy and her love for Billy. She was probably so distraught that she couldn't have any kind of physical union with him. Would it have made my love and knowledge of Syria, the character, more profound and interesting if I'd known about this process at the start of the novel? I think yes, definitely. That's not really a criticism. It's just, I think if I'd known right at the start, I would have been more sympathetic to her flighty behaviour. And then later in the novel, Syria is able to visualise the tank she was in for 15 years. And we can see how the EMC tried to make the tank more palatable for children. Quote, she could see her tank, EMC's corporate idea of what a 13-year-old girl would want, a coffin decorated with gold mouldings of elves, unicorns and dragons, all making heroic self-sacrifices over and over again, as if death wasn't a permanent state and heartbreak could always be risen above. Horrifying and sickening. Now, we have quite a lot of sexualized writing about females. This is the description of Annie Glyph after she's been to the tailor. Quote, she wore a calf-length pink satin skirt with a kick pleat at the back and a bolero top in lime green angora wool that showed off her nipples. This she had accessorised with a little gold chain belt, also block-heeled sandals in transparent urethane. Her hair, a blonde floss, was done up in bunches with matching ribbon. Even with the shoes, she was less than five foot two and a half inches tall. 
This bizarre dress only applies to the females, I've noticed. It's interesting that in this world of cultivars and clones, the sex drive is as strong as ever. It could have been that with the biological lack of need to have sex, the behavior would have diminished, but clearly not in this novel. It's a very sexualized place. The body is incredibly confined, obviously being in the tank and also Syria being connected to this K-code. When Syria gets a new body, she understands that Uncle Zip deals in confinement. He's the tailor, remember. Quote, the Dr. Hans package lay on the floor in front of her, locked up in Uncle Zip's red and green beribboned box, which she saw now was a kind of metaphor for the actual mechanisms of confinement that Jean Taylor had used. Now, don't we all feel like our consciousness is confined by our physical bodies? It's part of the mind-body problem, I think, which is a philosophical dilemma that asks how the mind, the consciousness, our thoughts, our emotions, and the body, neurons, brain, physical processes, are related to each other. It questions whether they are two separate entities or if they're interconnected in some way. In other words, it's the problem of understanding the relationship between mental states and physical states and how they interact with each other. The RX1 wormhole is interesting. It reminded me a little bit of a birthing canal. When Uncle Zip chases Syria to the RX1 wormhole, quote, Uncle Zip could just make it out there in the boiling gravitational rapids just outside the last stable orbit, a fragile volva of light into which the white cat could be seen propelling herself like a tiny sliver of ice, those curious annular shockwaves still slipping regularly back along her brilliant raw trail of fusion product. And Ed, Sirius' brother, quote, felt the soft inside of the wormhole touch the ship. He was born with grace and without instant down a birth canal a million years old. I've just read Gravity's Rainbow and that's almost the opposite visual image that I get this wormhole, this going to the K-Tech planet is so important. Obviously, we've got the light as well, but it's kind of the polar opposite to the thrusting rocket of gravity's rainbow. I wonder if it is some kind of response in any way. There's some interesting Christian imagery in the book. I think it was Kearney who says, quote, he saw the raging glory of the light and then the Shrander's counter-tenor quality made it sound, quote, like a boy or a nun. And in his recollection of meeting Shrander at Shrander's house for the first time and being commanded to, quote, look out here. When he did, everything lurched and there was nothing but blackness and a sense of enormous speed, a few dim points of light. After a moment, a chaotic attractor generated itself, churning and boiling in the cheap iridescent colours of 1980s computer art, Christ's blood streaming in the firmament. The Shranda does seem to inhabit this godlike, perhaps Christ-like figure, and the Shranda does inhabit these different forms, Dr. Hans, Sandra Shen, just as God inhabited the form of Jesus in the Bible. Billy Anker's communication beacon is called, quote, the transubstantiation station. Another biblical reference. We've also got a reference to sacrifice with the Brian Kearney murders, as if he was trying to subdue or give an offering to this Shrander, a propitiation, in order to keep it at bay, to appease a god. It reminds me of a biblical sacrifice. And, spoiler alert, the very end of the book is entitled The Beginning, the first words of the Bible, surely a biblical reference quote in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth and the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters and God said let there be light and there was light a fitting end to a novel about light the idea of polymorphism as an expression of information is an interesting idea that occurs in the book. Remember the expression, information could be substance. It is this information that gives Syria her ultimate freedom to polymorph. Syria is such an interesting character. She's belligerent, she's compulsive, and she's locked away in this K-ship for the duration of the novel. It's such a wonderful epiphany when she is finally given wings and the opportunity to be whatever she wants. Listen to this passage, it's rather beautiful. She describes how the Shranda gives her wings and the narrator says, quote, she rose up and circled about awkwardly above the Shranda's head 
That's Dr. Hans, the magician. I don't know how to do this, Syria called down to him. Some turns, do some more turns, you see. She did some more turns. I'm quite good at it. She made herself look down at the white cat. All those years, she marvelled, was I that? She shed something that might have been tears. If an organism so bizarre, so huge and yet so frail, so perpetually emergent from its own desires could be said to weep. Oh dear, she said, I don't know how I feel. Suddenly she laughed. Her laughter filled the vacuum. It was the laughter of particles. She was laughing in every regime. She tried out the different things she could be. There were always more. There were always more after that. Do you like this? She called down. I think I prefer the last one. Her wings lost their look of feathers and the kefahushi light ran along them from the tip like wildfire. Syria Mao Zhenlika laughed and laughed and laughed. What freedom to be whatever you want, to not be trapped in the same substance, the same body, to polymorph at will. We still have loads of humorous names in the novel. I mentioned last podcast, The Dip Ship, which I thought was very funny. I love the ship, The Perfect Low, to describe Sandra Shen's travelling circus. And when Ed is talking to the Shrander, she says, quote, You wouldn't like what's under this coat. I'm not Nina Vesicle down there. These little humorous touches are dotted throughout the novel and make it such a readable and, dare I say it, a human read. And at the end, Kearney's fear of the Shrander was completely unfounded and all those murders for nothing. Shame about all those murders. Overall thoughts about the book, how can I summarise it? It's a book about love, it's about obsession, it's about science, it's about sadness, it's about humour, it's funny. Hubris, comedy, time, quantum physics, the nature of reality, what it means to have a body. is so many things in this kaleidoscopic world of aliens, star systems, madcap science through to this urban mundanity of a London suburb and a New York subway. Who would I recommend it to? Well, anyone with a brain and who is willing to think deeply about the nature of reality, time and human consciousness and is willing to surf the novel, not maybe understand every word because I surely didn't, but to surf it just as Brian is told to do when he goes through the wormhole. If I could rate it, not for me, liked it, loved it. Yes, you guessed it, I absolutely loved it. The sheer amount of ideas it generated was staggering. I'm going to be thinking about this book for a very long time. That comment the Shrander makes right at the end to Ed, I'm gonna quote it. Quote, I don't want you to understand it, I want you to surf it. As I said, that's how I felt about the book. It's more about the visual and spectacular images of time and space melting than an actual concrete understanding. That's what really brings the book alive. And it's got such a great philosophy. I'm always trying to understand the world. Sometimes it's great just to step back and instead of trying to understand it, just experience it, surf that wave. These are just some of the ideas that resonated with me. So what did you think about the book? Would you recommend it to a friend? I'm sure you'll have your own standout ideas. I'd love to hear them and perhaps share them in the next episode. So please write and let me know your thoughts below or send me an email. I don't know a huge amount about M. John Harrison. So here's some information that I've taken from Wikipedia. Michael John Harrison was born in 1945. His work includes the Viconium sequence of novels and short stories and the Kefahushi Tract trilogy, which consists of light, Nova Swing and Empty Space. He's widely considered one of the major stylists of modern fantasy and science fiction and a genre contrarian. Robert McFarlane has said, quote, Harrison is best known as one of the restless fathers of modern science fiction, but to my mind he is among the most brilliant novelists writing today with regard to whom the question of genre is an irrelevance. The Times Literary Supplement described him as a singular stylist and the Literary Review called him a witty and truly imaginative writer. I couldn't agree more. Fantastic author. I'm going to seek out his other works. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit now about June's book, the trilogy Malloy, Malone Dies and The Unmissable by Samuel Beckett. It's 418 pages. It's published in 1951 in France. And then there was an English translation in 1955, which is what I'm reading now. If you're reading alongside, I'll be reading up to page 209. That's the paragraph that starts, quote, I fear I may have fallen asleep again. Now, the reason I'm reading this book is because a very good friend of mine is doing a PhD on Beckett and he's constantly talking about 
Beckett and I've got the Beckett archive just up the road from me. So time to put Beckett on the menu. I'm going to read the first page and give you my initial thoughts. So this is Malloy, page one. I'm in my mother's room. It's I who live there now. I don't know how I got there, perhaps in an ambulance, certainly a vehicle of some kind. I was helped. I'd never have got there alone. There's this man who comes every week. Perhaps I got here thanks to him. He says not. He gives me money and takes away the pages. So many pages, so much money. Yes, I work now, a little like I used to. Except that I don't know how to work anymore. That doesn't matter, apparently. What I'd like now is to speak of the things that are left, say my goodbyes, finish dying. They don't want that. Yes, there is more than one, apparently, but it's always the same one that comes. You'll do that later, he says. Good. The truth is, I haven't much will left. When he comes for the fresh pages, he brings back the previous weeks. They are marked with signs I don't understand. Anyway, I don't read them. When I've done nothing, he gives me nothing. He scolds me. Yet I don't work for money. For what then? I don't know. The truth is, I don't know much. For example, my mother's death. Was she already dead when I came? Or did she only die later? I mean enough to bury. I don't know. Perhaps they haven't buried her yet. In any case, I have her room. I sleep in her bed. I've taken her place. I must resemble her more and more. All I need now is a son. Perhaps I have one somewhere, but I think not. He would be old now, nearly as old as myself. It was a little chambermaid. It wasn't true love. The true love was in another. We'll come to that. Her name? I've forgotten it again. It seems to me sometimes that I even knew my son, that I helped him. Then I tell myself it's impossible. It's impossible I could ever have helped anyone. I've forgotten how to spell to and half the words. That doesn't matter. Apparently. Good. He's a queer one, the one who comes to see me. He comes every Sunday, apparently. The other days he isn't free. He's always thirsty. It was he told me I'd begun all wrong, that I should have begun differently. He must be right. I began at the beginning like an old ballocks. Can you imagine that? Here's my beginning, because they're keeping it, apparently. I took a lot of trouble with it. Here it is. It gave me a lot of trouble. It was the beginning. Do you understand? Whereas now it's near the end. Is what I do now any better? I don't know. That's beside the point. Here's my beginning. It must mean something or they wouldn't keep it. Here it is. And then we go into his beginning, I hope. Very interesting. I like that quote. For example, my mother's death. Was she already dead when I came or did she only die later? I mean, enough to bury. I think the implication being that you can die and still be alive. That is very interesting. I don't know. And so he's writing his history. They want his history. They're paying him for his history because they're giving him money. He gives me money and takes away the pages. So many pages. So he's doing a lot of writing. I'm interested in hearing his story. Thank you very much, Beckett. I'm looking forward to reading that. Thanks very much for listening. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear them, so leave a comment below. Or if you're listening to the episode, send an email to bookshook at yahoo.com. And if you want to recommend a future book to read together, do let me know. Also, if you enjoyed this, please give it a thumbs up and subscribe, or give it five stars on your episode app, or leave a comment. Thank you very much. I look forward to discussing the first half of the trilogy, Malloy Malone Dies, and The Unameable by Samuel Beckett, which is 418 pages. At the next episode of Bookshook, that's the second Friday of June, June the 9th. See you then. Mm-hmm.